Chapter Thirty One of Ivanhoe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Ivanhoe by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter Thirty One. Once more into the breach, dear friends, once more, or close up the wall with our English dead. And you, good yeoman, whose limbs were made in England, show us here the metal of your pasture. Let us swear that you are worth your breeding. Taken from King Henry V. Cedric, although not greatly confident in Ulrica's message, omitted not to communicate her promise to the Black Knight and Locksley. They were well pleased to find they had a friend within the place, who might, in the moment of need, be able to facilitate their entrance, and readily agreed with the Saxon that a storm, under whatever disadvantages, ought to be attempted, as the only means of liberating the prisoners now in the hands of the cruel Front le Beuf. "'The royal blood of Alfred is endangered,' said Cedric. "'The honour of a noble lady is in peril,' said the Black Knight." And, by the St. Christopher at my baldric, said the good yeoman, were there no other cause than the safety of that poor faithful knave, Wamba, I would jeopard a joint, ere a hair of his head were hurt. And so would I, said the friar. What, sirs? I trust well that a fool, I mean, do you see me, sirs, a fool that is free of his guild and master of his craft, and can give as much relish and flavour to a cup of wine as ever a flitch of bacon can. I say, brethren, such a fool shall never want a wise clerk to pray for, or to fight for him at a strait, while I can say a mass or flourish a partisan. And with that he made his heavy halberd to play around his head, as a shepherd-boy flourishes his light crook. "'True, holy clerk,' said the black knight, true as if st dunstan himself had said it and now good locksley were it not well that noble cedric should assume the direction of this assault not a jot i returned cedric i have never been wont to study either how to take or how to hold out those abodes of tyrannic power which the normans have erected in this groaning land i will fight among the foremost but my honest neighbours well know I am not a trained soldier in the discipline of wars, or the attack of strongholds. Since it stands thus with noble Cedric, said Locksley, I am most willing to take on me the direction of the archery, and ye shall hang me up on my own trysting tree, and the defenders be permitted to show themselves over the walls without being stuck with as many shafts as there are cloves and a gammon of bacon at Christmas. "'Well said, stout yeoman,' answered the Black Knight. "'And if I be thought worthy to have a charge in these matters, "'and can find among these brave men as many as are willing to follow a true English knight, "'for so I may surely call myself, "'I am ready, with such skill as my experience has taught me, "'to lead them to the attack of these walls.' "'The parts being thus distributed to the leaders, "'they commenced the first assault,' of which the reader has already heard the issue. When the barbican was carried, 
the sable knight sent notice of the happy event to Loxley, requesting him at the same time to keep such a strict observation on the castle as might prevent the defenders from combining their force for a sudden sally, and recovering the outwork which they had lost. This the knight was chiefly desirous of avoiding, conscious that the men whom he led, being hasty and untrained volunteers, imperfectly armed and unaccustomed to discipline, must, upon any sudden attack, fight at great disadvantage with the veteran soldiers of the Norman knights, who were well provided with arms both defensive and offensive, and who, to match the zeal and high spirit of the besiegers, had all the confidence which arises from perfect discipline and the habitual use of weapons. The knight employed the interval in causing to be constructed a sort of floating bridge, or long raft, by means of which he hoped to cross the moat in despite of the resistance of the enemy. This was a work of some time, which the leaders the less regretted, as it gave Ulrica leisure to execute her plan of diversion in their favour, whatever that might be. When the raft was completed, the black knight addressed the besiegers. "'It avails not waiting here longer, my friends. The sun is descending in the west, and I have that upon my hands which will not permit me to tarry with you another day. Besides,' It will be a marvel if the horsemen come not upon us from York, unless we speedily accomplish our purpose. Wherefore, one of ye go to Loxley, and bid him commence a discharge of arrows on the opposite side of the castle, and move forward as if about to assault it. And you, true English hearts, stand by me, and be ready to thrust the raft endlong over the moat, whenever the postern on our side is thrown open." Follow me boldly across, and aid me to burst yon sally-port in the main wall of the castle. As many of you as like not the service, or are but ill-armed to meet it, do you man the top of the outwork, draw your bowstrings to your ears, and mind you quell with your shot whatever shall appear to man the rampart. Noble Cedric, wilt thou take the direction of those which remain? No. "'Not so, by the soul of Hereward,' said the Saxon. "'Lead I cannot, but may posterity curse me in my grave, "'if I follow not with the foremost, wherever thou shalt point the way. "'The quarrel is mine, and well it becomes me to be in the van of the battle.' "'Yet bethink thee, noble Saxon,' said the knight, "'thou hast neither hauberk, nor corslet, nor aught but that light helmet, target and sword.' "'The better,' answered Cedric, "'I shall be the lighter to climb these walls, "'and, forgive the boast, Sir Knight, "'thou shalt this day see the naked breast of a Saxon "'as boldly presented to the battle "'as ever ye beheld the steel corslet of a Norman.' "'In the name of God, then,' said the knight, "'fling open the door, and launch the floating bridge.' "'The portal,' which led from the inner wall of the Barbican to the moat, and which corresponded with a sally-port in the main wall of the castle, was now suddenly opened. The temporary bridge was then thrust forward, and soon flashed in the waters, extending its length between the castle and the outwork, and forming a slippery and precarious passage for two men abreast to cross the moat. Well aware of the importance of taking the foe by surprise, the black knight, closely followed by Cedric, 
threw himself upon the bridge, and reached the opposite side. Here he began to thunder with his axe upon the gate of the castle, protected in part from the shot and stones cast by the defenders, by the ruins of the former drawbridge, which the Templar had demolished in his retreat from the Barbican, leaving the counterpoise still attached to the upper part of the portal. The followers of the knight had no such shelter. Two were instantly shot with crossbow bolts, and two more fell into the moat. The others retreated back into the barbican. The situation of Cedric and of the Black Knight was now truly dangerous, and would have been still more so, but for the constancy of the archers in the barbican, who ceased not to shower their arrows upon the battlements, distracting the attention of those by whom they were manned, and thus affording a respite to their two chiefs from the storm of missiles which must otherwise have overwhelmed them. But their situation was eminently perilous, and was becoming more so with every moment. "'Shame on you all!' cried De Bracy to the soldiers around him. "'Do ye you call yourselves crossbowmen, and let these two dogs keep their station under the walls of the castle? Heave over the coping-stones from the battlements, and better may not be. Get pickaxe and levers, and down with that huge pinnacle!' Pointing to a heavy piece of stone carved work that projected from the parapet. At this moment the besiegers caught sight of the red flag upon the angle of the tower which Ulrica had described to Cedric. The stout yeoman Loxley was the first who was aware of it, as he was hasting to the outwork, impatient to see the progress of the assault. "'St. George!' he cried. "'Merry St. George for England! To the charge, bold yeoman! Why leave ye the good knight and noble Cedric to storm the pass alone? Make in, mad priest! Show thou canst fight for thy rosary! Make in, brave yeoman! The castle is ours! We have friends within! See under flag, it is the appointed signal! Torquil stone is ours!' Think of honour, think of spoil. One effort and the place is ours. With that he bent his good bow, and sent a shaft right through the breast of one of the men-at-arms, who, under de Bracy's direction, was loosening a fragment from one of the battlements to precipitate on the heads of Cedric and the Black Knight. A second soldier caught from the hands of the dying man, the Iron Crow, with which he heaved at and had loosened the stone pinnacle, when, Receiving an arrow through his headpiece, he dropped from the battlements into the moat a dead man. The men-at-arms were daunted, for no armor seemed proof against the shot of this tremendous archer. "'Do ye give ground base knaves?' said de Bracy. "'Mountjoy St. Dennis, give me the lever!' And snatching it up, he again assailed the loosened pinnacle, which was of weight enough, if thrown down, not only to have destroyed the remnant of the drawbridge, which sheltered the two foremost assailants, but also to have sunk the rude float of planks over which they had crossed. All saw the danger, and the boldest, even the stout friar himself, avoided setting foot on the raft. Thrice did Loxley bend his shaft against de Bracy, and thrice did his arrow bound back from the knight's armour of proof. "'Curse on thy Spanish steel coat!' said Loxley. "'Had English smith forged it, these arrows had gone through, and as if it had been silk or sendal.' He then began to call out, "'Comrades! Friends! Noble Cedric! Bear back!' 
and let the ruin fall. His warning voice was unheard, for the din which the knight himself occasioned by his strokes upon the postern would have drowned twenty war trumpets. The faithful girth indeed sprung forward on the planked bridge, to warn Cedric of his impending fate, or to share it with him. But his warning would have come too late, the massive pinnacle already tottered, and de Bracy, who still heaved at his task, would have accomplished it, had not the voice of the Templar sounded close in his ears, "'All is lost, de Bracy, the castle burns!' "'Thou art mad to say so,' replied the knight. "'It is all in a light flame on the western side. I have striven in vain to extinguish it.' With the stern coolness which formed the basis of his character, Brian de Bois-Gilbert communicated this hideous intelligence, which was not so calmly received by his astonished comrade. "'Saints of Paradise!' said de Bracy. "'What is to be done? I vow to St. Nicholas of Limoges a candlestick of pure gold!' "'Spare thy vow,' said the Templar, "'and mark me. Lead thy men down, as if to a sally. Throw the postern gate open. There are but two men who occupy the float.' Fling them into the moat and push across for the barbican. I will charge from the main gate and attack the barbican on the outside, and if we can regain that post, be assured we shall defend ourselves until we are relieved, or at least till they grant us fair quarter. It is well thought upon, said de Bracy. I will play my part. Templar, wilt thou not fail me? Hand and glove I will not, said Bois Gilbert but haste thee in the name of God. De Bracy hastily drew his men together, and rushed down to the postern gate, which he caused instantly to be thrown open. But scarce was this done ere the portentous strength of the black knight forced his way inward in despite of De Bracy and his followers. Two of the foremost instantly fell, and the rest gave way notwithstanding all their leader's efforts to stop them. "'Dogs!' said De Bracy. Will you let two men win our only pass for safety? He is the devil, said a veteran man-at-arms, bearing back from the blows of their sable antagonist. And if he be the devil, replied de Bracy, would you fly from him into the mouth of hell? The castle burns behind us, villains. Let despair give you courage, or let me forward. I will cope with this champion myself." and well and chivalrous did de Bracy that day maintain the fame he had acquired in the civil wars of that dreadful period. The vaulted passage to which the postern gave entrance, and in which these two redoubted champions were now fighting hand to hand, rung with the furious blows which they dealt each other, de Bracy with his sword, the black knight with his ponderous axe. At length the Norman received a blow which— though its force was partly parried by his shield, for otherwise never more would de Bracy have again moved limb, descended yet with such violence on his crest that he measured his length on the paved floor. "'Yield thee, de Bracy,' said the black champion, stooping over him, and holding against the bars of his helmet the fatal poniard with which the knights dispatched their enemies, and which was called the Dagger of Mercy.' Yield thee, Morris de Bracy, rescue or no rescue, or thou art but a dead man. I will not yield, replied de Bracy faintly. 
to an unknown conqueror. Tell me thy name, or work thy pleasure on me. It shall never be said that Maurice de Bracy was prisoner to a nameless churl. The black knight whispered something into the ear of the vanquished. I yield me to be true prisoner. Rescue or no rescue, answered the Norman, exchanging his tone of stern and determined obstinacy for one of deep, though sullen, submission. Go to the Barbican, said the victor in a tone of authority, and there await my further orders. Yet first let me say, said de Bracy, what it imports thee to know. Wilfred of Ivanhoe is wounded and a prisoner, and will perish in the burning castle without present help. Wilfred of Ivanhoe! exclaimed the black knight. Prisoner and perish! The life of every man in the castle shall answer if a hair of his head be singed. Show me his chamber! Ascend yonder winding stair, said de Bracy. It leads to his apartment. Wilt thou not accept my guidance? he added in a submissive voice. No, to the Barbican, and there await my orders. I trust thee not, De Bracy. During this combat and the brief conversation which ensued, Cedric, at the head of a body of men, among whom the friar was conspicuous, had pushed across the bridge as soon as they saw the postern open, and drove back the dispirited and despairing followers of De Bracy, of whom some asked quarter, some offered vain resistance, and the greater part fled towards the courtyard. De Bracy himself arose from the ground, and cast a sorrowful glance after his conqueror. "'He trusts me not,' he repeated, "'but have I deserved his trust?' He then lifted his sword from the floor, took off his helmet in token of submission, and, going to the barbican, gave up his sword to Loxley, whom he met by the way. As the fire augmented, symptoms of it became soon apparent in the chamber, where Ivanhoe was watched and tended by the Jewess Rebecca. He had been awakened from his brief slumber by the noise of the battle, and his attendant, who had, at his anxious desire, again placed herself at the window to watch and report to him the fate of the attack, was for some time prevented from observing either by the increase of the smouldering and stifling vapour. At length the volumes of smoke which rolled into the apartment, the cries for water which were heard even above the din of the battle, made them sensible of the progress of this new danger. "'The castle burns,' said Rebecca. "'It burns. What can we do to save ourselves?' "'Fly, Rebecca, and save thine own life,' said Ivanhoe, "'for no human aid can avail me.' I will not fly, answered Rebecca. We will be saved or perish together. And yet, great God, my father, my father, what will be his fate? At this moment the door of the apartment flew open, and the Templar presented himself, a ghastly figure, for his gilded armor was broken and bloody, and the plume was partly shorn away, partly burnt from his cask. I have found thee said he to Rebecca. Thou shalt prove I will keep my word to share weal and woe with thee. There is but one path to safety. I have cut my way through fifty dangers to point it to thee. Up, and instantly follow me. 
Alone, answered Rebecca, I will not follow thee. If thou wert born of woman, if thou hast but a touch of human charity in thee, if thy heart be not hard as thy breastplate, save my aged father, save this wounded knight. A knight, answered the Templar, with his characteristic calmness, a knight, Rebecca, must encounter his fate, whether it meet him in the shape of sword or flame, and who wrecks how or where a Jew meets with his. Savage warrior, said Rebecca, rather will I perish in the flames than accept safety from thee. Thou shalt not choose, Rebecca. Once didst thou foil me, but never mortal did so twice. So saying, he seized on the terrified maiden, who filled the air with her shrieks, and bore her out of the room in his arms, in spite of her cries, and without regarding the menaces and defiances which Ivanhoe thundered against him. "'Hound of the temple! Stain to thine order! Set free the damsel! Traitor of Bois-Joubert! It is Ivanhoe commands thee! Villain, I will have thy heart's blood!' "'I had not found thee, Wilfred,' said the black knight, who at that instant entered the apartment, but for thy shouts. "'If thou be true knight,' said Wilfred, "'think not of me. Pursue yon ravisher. Save the Lady Rowena. Look to the noble Cedric.' "'In their turn,' answered he of the fetterlock. "'But thine is first. And seizing upon Ivanhoe, he bore him off with as much ease as the Templar had carried off Rebecca, rushed with him to the postern, and having there delivered his burden to the care of two yeomen, he again entered the castle to assist in the rescue of the other prisoners. One turret was now in bright flames, which flashed out furiously from window and shot-hole. But in other parts, the great thickness of the walls and the vaulted roofs of the apartments resisted the progress of the flames, and there the rage of man still triumphed, as the scarce more dreadful element held mastery elsewhere, for the besiegers pursued the defenders of the castle from chamber to chamber, and satiated in their blood the vengeance which had long animated them against the soldiers of the tyrant Front de Boeuf. Most of the garrison resisted to the uttermost. Few of them asked quarter. None received it. The air was filled with groans and clashing of arms. The floors were slippery with the blood of despairing and expiring wretches. Through this scene of confusion, Cedric rushed in quest of Rowena, while the faithful Gurth, following him closely through the melee, neglected his own safety while he strove to avert the blows that were aimed at his master. The noble Saxon was so fortunate as to reach his ward's apartment just as she had abandoned all hope of safety, and, with a crucifix clasped in agony to her bosom, sat in expectation of instant death. He committed her to the charge of Gurth, to be conducted in safety to the Barbican, the road to which was now cleared of the enemy, and not yet interrupted by the flames. This accomplished, the loyal Cedric hastened in quest of his friend Athelstane, determined, at every risk to himself, to save that last scion of Saxon royalty. But ere Cedric penetrated as far as the old hall in which he had himself been a prisoner, the inventive genius of Wamba had procured liberation for himself and his companion in adversity. 
when the noise of the conflict announced that it was at the hottest the jester began to shout with the utmost power of his lungs st george and the dragon bonny st george for merry england the castle is won and these sounds he rendered yet more fearful by banging against each other two or three pieces of rusty armour which lay scattered around the hall. A guard, which had been stationed in the outer or anteroom, and whose spirits were already in a state of alarm, took fright at Wamba's clamour, and, leaving the door open behind them, ran to tell the Templar that foemen had entered the old hall. Meantime the prisoners found no difficulty in making their escape into the anteroom, and from thence into the court of the castle, which was now the last scene of contest. Here sat the fierce Templar, mounted on horseback, surrounded by several of the garrison both on horse and foot, who had united their strength to that of this renowned leader, in order to secure the last chance of safety and retreat which remained to them. The drawbridge had been lowered by his orders, but the passage was beset, for the archers, who had hitherto only annoyed the castle on that side by their missiles, no sooner saw the flames breaking out and the bridge lowered than they thronged to the entrance, as well to prevent the escape of the garrison, as to secure their own share of booty ere the castle should be burnt down. On the other hand, a party of the besiegers who had entered by the postern was now issuing out into the courtyard, and attacking with fury the remnant of the defenders, who were thus assaulted on both sides at once. Animated, however, by despair, and supported by the example of their indomitable leader, the remaining soldiers of the castle fought with the utmost valour, and, being well armed, succeeded more than once in driving back the assailants, though much inferior in numbers. Rebecca, placed on horseback before one of the Templar's Saracen slaves, was in the midst of the little party, and Bois-Gilbert, notwithstanding the confusion of the bloody fray, showed every attention to her safety. Repeatedly he was by her side, and, neglecting his own defence, held before her the fence of his triangular steel-plated shield, and anon starting from his position by her, he cried his war-cry, dashed forward, struck to earth the most forward of the assailants, and was on the same instant once more at her bridal rein. Athelstane, who, as the reader knows, was slothful, but not cowardly, beheld the female form which the Templar protected thus sedulously, and doubted not that it was Rowena whom the knight was carrying off, in despite of all resistance which could be offered. "'By the soul of St. Edward,' he said, "'I will rescue her from yonder over-proud knight,' and he shall die by my hand. "'Think what you do!' cried Wamba. "'Hasty hand catches frog for fish. By my bauble, yonder is none of my lady Rowena. See but her long dark locks. Nay, and ye will not know black from white. Ye may be leader, but I will be no follower. No bones of mine shall be broken unless I know for whom. And you without armour, too!' Bethink you, silk bonnet never kept out steel blade. Nay, then, if willful will to water, willful must drench. Deus fubiscum, most doughty Athelstane, he concluded, loosening the hold which he had hitherto kept upon the Saxon's tunic. 
to snatch a mace from the pavement on which it lay beside one whose dying grasp had just relinquished it, to rush on the Templar's band, and to strike in quick succession to the right and left, levelling a warrior at each blow, was, for Athelstane's great strength, now animated with unusual fury, but the work of a single moment. He was soon within two yards of Bois-Gilbert, whom he defied in his loudest tone. "'Turn, false-hearted Templar! Let her go whom thou art unworthy to touch! Turn, limb of a hand of murdering and hypocritical robbers!' "'Dog!' said the Templar, grinding his teeth. "'I will teach thee to blaspheme the holy order of the Temple of Zion!' And with these words, half-wheeling his steed, he made a demi-courbet towards the Saxon, and, rising in the stirrups, so as to take full advantage of the descent of the horse, he discharged a fearful blow upon the head of Athelstane. "'Well said, Wamba, that silken bonnet keeps out no steel blade.' So trenchant was the Templar's weapon, that it shore asunder, as it had been a willow-twig, the tough and plated handle of the mace, which the ill-fated Saxon reared to parry the blow, and, descending on his head, levelled him with the earth. "'Ha! Beausant!' exclaimed Bois-Gilbert. "'Thus be it to the maligners of the Temple Knights!' taking advantage of the dismay which was spread by the fall of Athelstane, and calling aloud, "'Those who would save themselves, follow me!' He pushed across the drawbridge, dispersing the archers who would have intercepted them. He was followed by his Saracens and some five or six men-at-arms, who had mounted their horses. The Templar's retreat was rendered perilous by the numbers of arrows shot off at him and his party, but this did not prevent him from galloping round to the Barbican, of which, according to his previous plan, he supposed it possible De Bracy might have been in possession. "'De Bracy! De Bracy!' he shouted. "'Art thou there?' "'I am here,' replied De Bracy. "'But I am a prisoner.' "'Can I rescue thee?' cried Bois-Gilbert. "'No,' replied De Bracy. "'I have rendered me rescue or no rescue. I will be true prisoner.' save thyself there are hawks abroad put the seas betwixt you and england i dare not say more well answered the templar and thou wilt tarry there remember i have redeemed word and glove be the hawks where they will methinks the walls of the preceptory of templestowe will be cover sufficient and thither will i like heron to her haunt having thus spoken he galloped off with his followers those of the castle who had not gotten to horse still continued to fight desperately with the besiegers after the departure of the Templar, but rather in despair of quarter than that they entertained any hope of escape. The fire was spreading rapidly through all parts of the castle, when Ulrica, who had first kindled it, appeared on a turret in the guise of one of the ancient furies, yelling forth a war-song such as was of yore raised on the field of battle by the scalds of the yet heathen Saxons. Her long dishevelled grey hair flew back from her uncovered head, the inebriating delight of gratified vengeance contended in her eyes with the fire of insanity, and she brandished the distaff which she held in her hand, as if she had been one of the fatal sisters, who spin and abridge the thread of human life." 
tradition has preserved some wild strophes of the barbarous hymn which she chanted wildly amid that scene of fire and of slaughter. Verse 1. Wet the bright steel, sons of the white dragon, kindle the torch, daughter of Hengist. The steel glimmers not for the carving of the banquet. It is hard, broad, and sharply pointed. The torch goeth not to the bridal chamber. It steams and glitters blue with sulphur. Wet the steel, the raven croaks. Light the torch. Zernebach is yelling. Wet the steel, sons of the dragon. Kindle the torch, daughter of Hengist. Verse 2. The black cloud is low over the thane's castle. The eagle screams, he rides on its bosom. Scream not, grey rider of the sable cloud, thy banquet is prepared. The maidens of Valhalla look forth, the race of Hengist will send them guests. Shake your black tresses, maidens of Valhalla, and strike your loud timbrels for joy. Many a haughty step bends to your halls, many a helmed head. Verse 3. Dark sits the evening upon the thane's castle. The black clouds gather round. Soon shall they be red as the blood of the valiant. The destroyer of forests shall shake his red crest against them. He, the bright consumer of palaces, broad waves he his blazing banner, red, wide, and dusky, over the strife of the valiant. His joy is in the clashing swords and broken bucklers, he loves to lick the hissing blood as it bursts warm from the wound. Verse 4. All must perish. The sword cleaveth the helmet. The strong armor is pierced by the lance. Fire devoureth the dwelling of princes. Engines break down the fences of the battle. All must perish. The race of Hengist is gone. The name of Horsa is no more. Shrink not, then, from your doom, sons of the sword. Let your blades drink blood like wine. Feast ye in the banquet of slaughter, by the light of the blazing halls. Strong be your swords while your blood is warm, and spare neither for pity nor fear, for vengeance hath but an hour. Strong hate itself shall expire. I also must perish." The towering flames had now surmounted every obstruction, and rose to the evening skies one huge and burning beacon, seen far and wide through the adjacent country. Tower after tower crashed down, with blazing roof and rafter, and the combatants were driven from the courtyard. The vanquished, of whom very few remained, scattered and escaped into the neighboring wood. The victors, assembling in large bands, gazed with wonder not unmixed with fear, upon the flames in which their own ranks and arms glanced dusky red. The maniac figure of the Saxon Ulrica was for a long time visible on the lofty stand she had chosen, tossing her arms abroad with wild exultation, as if she reigned empress of the conflagration which she had raised. At length, with a terrific crash, the whole turret gave way, and she perished in the flames which had consumed her tyrant. An awful pause of horror silenced each murmur of the armed spectators, who, for the space of several minutes, stirred not a finger, save to sign the cross. 
The voice of Loxley was then heard. "'Shout, yeoman! The den of tyrants is no more! Let each bring his spoil to our chosen place of rendezvous at the trysting tree in the Hearthwalk, for there at break of day will we make just partition among our own bands, together with our worthy allies in this great deed of vengeance.'" End of chapter.